song for what we're going to dive into this morning. There's really nothing like a good rescue story. Once you start reading online about the 33 Chilean miners, you remember that, who were trapped in 2010 for 69 days underground, once you sort of dive into that story, it's hard to stop. You just, you just kind of keep going and all of the, the details unfold and it's mesmerizing. And after all of that time and Herculean efforts, all 33 of them were rescued from the mine. We could talk this morning, tell you the story, just last year in 2018 of the boys' soccer team in Thailand who were exploring a cave and the water rose very quickly and blocked their path out and so they were stuck on a little island almost underground and with their soccer coach and people from all around the world came to help them and involved Navy SEALs and everything else in the world, and they got all of them out alive and rescued them after two weeks underground. The lengths that we human beings will go to to rescue someone in danger are extraordinary. And I think that's why these stories just capture our attention. It's just amazing to watch the great lengths that we will go to to rescue people. Now, if you were a Jew, it's your average Jew living in the first century, the early first century, about the time of Jesus walking on earth, there was one rescue story that beat all other rescue stories no matter what. And you and your family would have remembered that rescue story and recounted that story once a year at a special feast, a special ceremony. And the day on which you would recount that story you would eat a meal in celebration of that rescue, and that was called Passover. So if you were a Jew living in Israel, your identity was very much wrapped up in the fact that you were Jewish. I mean, you, you, you could not explain yourself to someone apart from saying, I am a Jew in the line of Abraham. That was such a significant part of who you were. And so you closely identified with the history of the Jewish people of Israel and it was your people who were enslaved in Israel or in Egypt for 400 years. But God had promised Abraham, maybe the most important Jew, God had promised Abraham that after they were enslaved, he would bring them out of that enslavement and he would bring them into a land that he would give them, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he would plant them there and they would be his people and he would be their God. And he promised that he would give Abraham great descendants. And so you knew those promises, and you identified with those promises. And you identified with your people when they were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God remained faithful to those promises, and he brought your people out of slavery and rescued them from Pharaoh and from a hard life there. And he did that with a series of ten plagues that were meant to showcase his power over the Egyptian gods. And those 10 plagues culminated on a final night when God told your ancestors, you kill a lamb and you spread the blood of that lamb on your doorposts and that will keep you safe because I'm gonna send a destroyer through the land and the firstborn of every family will die unless that blood has been shed, unless that lamb has died as a substitute, your firstborn will die. 
And so you remember that as your people waited inside during that night with the blood on the doorposts, they ate a meal. They ate that Passover lamb. And they ate unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And through the death of the lamb, God's people were spared. And then God brought your people, your ancestors, out of slavery into the wilderness through the Red Sea, never to return again. And so no doubt, if you're a Jew in the first century, you know that story well. And that story is the quintessential rescue story in the entire Old Testament. No other story even comes close to that. It is the paradigm for God saving his people and rescuing his people. And nothing was more important to the identity of a Jewish person than the fact that God had rescued them. When God constitutes them as a people, He immediately tells them that in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. He said, I am the God who rescued you out of Egypt. This is who I am, and that is who you are. You are people who have been rescued by me. That's the most important thing about you. And so every year, because of the significance of that rescue, the monumental nature of it, your family would gather and you would celebrate Passover to remember and to rejoice in what God had done for your people. Now, it's no accident that in the Gospel of Mark, the death of Jesus is tied so closely to the Passover. It's no accident at all. Notice with me, open up to Mark chapter 14, if you're not there yet. Mark 14 and verse 1, this was our text from last week. Mark wants to draw our attention to the fact that it is Passover time. It was now two days before the Passover And then if you go down to the first verse of our text, Mark 14 and verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. The Passover was the paradigm of God's rescue in the Old Testament because it it led to the exodus from slavery and life in the promised land. It was how everything got started. But now in Mark 14 and then chapters 15 and 16, God's rescue of his people will undergo a dramatic change and a dramatic shift. And his rescue of his people will be reconstituted around Jesus Christ. And this new exodus through a new Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb, will be fully and finally what his people have always needed, and that is salvation from their core problem, which is sin. And so this morning, we're going to look at Mark 14, verses 12 through 25, and we're going to see two ways that God's rescue is reconstituted around Jesus for our salvation. So two ways that God's rescue is reconstituted around Jesus for our salvation. And the first one of these is on the screen. God's rescue arrives by a sovereign strategy. So if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and you get to chapter 14, it would be very easy to get the impression that events are beginning to unfold over which Jesus has no control at all. It's it's starting to get out of his hands here. Because in Mark 14 and verses 1 and 2, you see very powerful, the most powerful religious leaders in Israel are conspiring against him and they want to catch him by stealth. And then in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, you see one of Jesus's closest associates, one of his 12 disciples, who goes and 
to the religious leaders and joins with them in order to betray him. And so it seems like all of this is spiraling out of his control, and he's done a really good thing up until now, but man, it's, there's nothing he can do about this. But as you read this, and as we're going to see here in a few minutes, God's rescue doesn't happen by accident. God doesn't just sort of turn a bad situation good and sort of work things out in the, the best possible way with what he's got, with the hand he's been dealt. All of the events of the next few chapters unfold under the direct sovereign hand of God. It's all under his control. Everything in these chapters happens according to his timing, and that includes the fact that Jesus is crucified, and it includes the fact that Jesus is betrayed by Judas. God is a master painter. And every brush stroke, the light and the dark, is done by him, and it's done to showcase his redemption of his people. So let's begin in verse 12 and see this. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So we traditionally think that the Last Supper of Jesus was on the Thursday night of this week. And that's right. I'm not going to try to shake that up for you this morning. That is accurate. It is on Thursday night. But what's interesting is the Passover lambs were offered on Friday afternoon. And so Mark here says that it was the day when they sacrificed the Passover lamb that the disciples asked him about preparing the Passover feast. So how does this work? Thursday, Friday, seem like two different days. Well, you have to keep in mind that the Jewish day begins at sundown. And so after sundown on Thursday was the same day, according to the Jewish calendar, as Friday afternoon when the Passover lambs were offered in the temple. So it was the same day. And so the disciples ask Jesus about this, apparently after sundown, it's getting late, where are we going to eat the Passover? And notice what they say here. Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's very interesting here that they direct it to Jesus as if it is his meal. And it's centered on him. Certainly the Passover was always eaten in a group with family and with friends, but there was one man who would preside over each gathering and he would lead and instruct, as you'll see later, throughout the, the Passover meal. And in this case, it was Jesus. He was to lead their Passover experience this year. And so they direct the question to him. It's about celebrating it for him. And so Jesus gives them specific instructions on what to do to prepare the meal. Look at verses 13 to 15. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. So the disciples ask this because you have to eat the Passover within the city limits of Jerusalem. That was one of the requirements. So they've been staying in Bethany, which is a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So they understand we can't eat the Passover officially out in Bethany. So we have to find somewhere in the city to eat the Passover meal. And so Jesus tells them, you're to go into the city. And as you go in, you're going to find a man walking with a jar of water on his head. Now, maybe we are thinking there would have been like 
a million of these guys walking around. Well, actually, no. This was a little bit unique because typically women carried the jar of water on their heads and men would carry a skin of water or something different. And so to have a man carrying the jar of water on his head would be unique, so they'll be able to identify this guy. Now, I do think it's likely here that Jesus already had prearranged this with the master of the house. So he knew the guy, he'd already talked to him about having the Passover there. But at the same time, sending his disciples into the city at sundown and telling them they're going to bump into a guy carrying a jar of water on his head is knowledge that really isn't based in human origin. Jesus obviously has a supernatural knowledge here And we know that because of what happens in verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they they prepared the Passover. So despite the plot going on to arrest Jesus that we've learned about, Jesus is not a pawn who's going to get moved around by those more powerful than he is. He's in complete control. And this little story here of the disciples going in and Jesus telling them what they'll find, this shows us exactly that Jesus is in complete control. And you see this even further fleshed out in the next passage in verses 17 through 21. Here you're going to see this sovereign strategy on full display. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. So the events of verses 12 to 13 happen after sundown. Now it's getting pretty late in the evening, which actually matches up very well with what we know from the other Gospels. They went out to the garden around midnight. So it's quite late when they're gathering for this meal. Now the room that they're celebrating in, Jesus told them it would be a large upper room furnished for this, ready to have this sort of meal. And we typically think that this was just Jesus and his 12 disciples. In reality, there were probably several more people there. There were probably women, there were probably children, and there may have been other close associates of Jesus at this Passover meal. But of course, as you'll see, he was eating probably in the center of the room since he's the one leading the evening. He was eating at a table with his 12 disciples and only his 12 disciples at that table. Other people probably would have been scattered around the edges of the room, maybe eating at different tables or whatever. But during the meal... He addresses his disciples, and he explains to them that he knows exactly what's going to happen. They've already experienced him predicting what they'll find when they get in the city, and now he gives them even more detail. Look at verse 18. And as they were reclining at table, which was typical of a formal meal like this, and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Of course, you and I know because we're good Bible students, and because we just read in verses 10 and 11, we know that Judas is going to betray him. But at this point, the disciples have no idea about this. And so this would have been absolutely shocking and disheartening to them to think that one who had been with them in ministry, who had seen miracles, who had walked with Jesus over these years, to think that one so close to him would actually turn on him and would betray him They could hardly imagine how that would happen. Look at verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And Jesus answers in verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
Now, the point of verse 20 is just that it would have been one of the 12, one of those closest to him. So if you can picture the scene and the situation, Jesus is eating with his disciples in the center of the room, and there's a common dish that probably has oil and herbs in it, and they're passing it around, and they're dipping their bread into it. And Jesus is saying, it's one of you who has been dipping in the same cup as me. It doesn't necessarily mean that he dipped at the exact same moment, although that could have been the case. But we don't get that from the Gospel of Mark here. Jesus is just making the point that it's one of you who is sitting the closest to me. And it will be quite a betrayal. And so this is shocking to the disciples, right? Unnerving to them, surprising to them. But obviously this is not surprising to Jesus. In fact, this has been planned for hundreds and hundreds of years, even going back to the Old Testament. This is all a part of God's sovereign strategy to bring rescue and redemption. How do I know that? Look at verse 21. The first part, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is part of the plan. It's always been part of the plan. The chief priests think they're in control Judas thinks he's subtle, going under the radar, but this has always been the plan. It was referred to in the Old Testament, but as you read that, it's not real clear about which Old Testament passage Jesus is referring to. I mean, where do we find this predicted in the Old Testament? Well, there are a couple of places, a couple of sort of threads in the Old Testament that anticipate what is going to happen to Jesus here and his betrayal. First of all, when you read the Psalms, next time you read through the Psalms, notice how often David describes his suffering, his unjust suffering, and notice how often he talks about being betrayed by those closest to him. That's a thread that goes through the Psalms. The king of Israel betrayed by those closest to him. The king of Israel suffering in an unjust manner. One verse, Psalm 41.9 by Psalm of David. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. I mean, you think about the words that Jesus spoke on the cross from Psalm 22, a psalm of David. A psalm where David is describing his own suffering. Jesus sees himself as fulfilling that pattern of the king of Israel suffering in an unjust manner and suffering at the hands of those closest to him who would betray him. And Jesus says, that is me. I am that king. And he identifies with David. And so that's one place that I think he means when he says, as it is written of the Son of Man. But another place... And I think we'll see this throughout Mark 14 through 16. And this is the title of our whole series. I think Jesus is talking about the suffering servant of Isaiah. And he's saying, what you read about that individual in the Old Testament, that's me. Particularly Isaiah 53. And we'll get into that later. I won't read you yet from that passage. But here when he says that it is The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. I think he's talking about the king, David, suffering, and I think he's talking about the suffering servant. And he's identifying his experience with those key Old Testament characters. But here's what's amazing here about this whole circumstance, okay? As 
The betrayal unfolds, and it unfolds according to God's sovereign plan under his direct guidance. That doesn't eliminate the responsibility and the culpability of the one who will betray him. Look at the rest of verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but... Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is amazing. This is a look into how God's sovereign governance of the universe works. Everything moves according to his plan. Everything. Nations rise and fall And you think about when a nation rises, how many little actions and decisions have to come about in order for that nation to rise, in order for that king to come to power or that king to fall. God is sovereign over every single one of those actions and decisions. Charles Spurgeon described God's sovereignty this way. I'll read it to you. It's not on the screen. It's a little bit long, but listen to this. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God that worketh all things by the sovereign counsel of his will and no God at all. A God that cannot do as he pleases, a God whose will is frustrated is not a God and cannot be a God. I could not believe in such a God as that. And yet, human beings are morally responsible for our decisions and our actions. We're not robots. We can't just throw our hands up and say, well, God ordained it. I'm not responsible. You and I make very real decisions that have very real consequences. Judas made a choice here, and he lived and he died by that choice. And yet, somehow, that very real choice advanced God's sovereign plan for our rescue and our redemption. Acts 2. Peter understood this, maybe a little bit, not completely, but look what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed, but he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And this passage is sort of a 
a pulling back of how God governs the universe. And I can't explain all the mechanics of this to you, but what I can say is that this passage and this doctrine of God's sovereign governance of the universe and our moral responsibility, those two coming together can only cause us to bow in worship to a God like this. A God who is this powerful and who oversaw the betrayal of his son for our redemption. And the events of the Passover and this betrayal will bring about our rescue as the final Passover lamb reconstitutes God's redemption around himself by his atoning sacrifice. And that is our second point this morning. Two ways God's rescue is reconstituted around Jesus for our salvation. God's rescue arrives by a sovereign strategy. This was always the plan. But God's rescue also arrives by a substitutionary sacrifice. Verses 22 to 25. Now we often, I think, I know I often take my understanding of the death of Jesus for granted. I sort of think, well, yeah, I know why he died. I know how it works. I get it. But keep in mind, up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples had been told that Jesus would die. But he really hadn't gone into a lot of sort of theological explanation. He hadn't said, here's why I'm going to die. And here's how this is going to work. They had very little specific instruction as to why he would go to Jerusalem and die at the hands of the chief priests. Mark 10.45, he told them that he would be a ransom. And so there's some understanding given there, but he really hasn't fleshed this out fully yet, at least in the Gospel of Mark, for the disciples. He's mostly just said, I'm going to die. The fact is there, but not the why. But now we come to the actual Passover meal, where the disciples are together with Jesus in the upper room, his last night, and they're going to celebrate... And Jesus is going to teach the disciples about his death through the mechanism of the Passover. He's going to interpret his death through the lens of God's rescue of the Jewish people at the Exodus. And so it's going to bring light and clarity to why he will die when we understand his death as a sacrifice in light of what happened to Israel and what God did there. Jesus will be a new Passover sacrifice that will bring about a new exodus for God's people. Similar but better. And so when you understand the rescue that God brought to Israel in the exodus, then you can begin to understand the rescue that he brings to his people through the death of Christ by his sacrifice. And so what do we know about the Passover meal? Well, we know it was a meal that was celebrated yearly, and it was filled with meaning and with remembrance by the Jewish people. There was teaching that took place at this meal. It wasn't just that you got together and ate and assumed everyone knew what you were doing. It was actually instructed that you needed to teach and explain the elements and recount the story of the Exodus over the Passover meal. I mean, very early on in Exodus 13... You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. 
You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And so they were to teach their children what the meaning of this celebration was every year so that it was clear and so that their identity was found in the fact that they had been rescued. Now, over the centuries, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the rabbinic exposition of the law and expansion of the law, the Jewish Mishnah gave rabbinic teaching, and it actually fills out some of the practice of the Jews and gives instructions about what they were to do at the Passover to fulfill this command, to teach. And so I want to read to you from the Mishnah this morning. I know that sounds thrilling, but I actually think this, I actually think this will be really helpful to you in your understanding of what happens at the Passover. All right? So, a second cup of wine would be mixed for him, for the man who's leading the Passover meal. And here, the son asks questions to his father. And if the son has no understanding in order to ask questions, so in other words, if he's so young that he doesn't even understand what he should ask or that he should ask questions, his father teaches him to ask. And here's what he teaches him to ask. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat leavened grain products and matzah, which is unleavened. But on this night, it is all matzah. On all other nights, we eat other vegetables, but on this night, it is all bitter herbs. On all other nights, we eat meat, roasted, stewed, or boiled, but on this night, it is all roasted. On all other nights, we dip vegetables once, but on this night, we dip vegetables twice. And according to the son's understanding, his father instructs him. He begins instructing him about the Exodus story with the account of Israel's shame and concludes with Israel's praise or glory. And so that really made up the heart of this meal. It was a time of instruction from a father to a son with everyone else listening in. And so when these people gather in the upper room with Jesus, they're fully expecting instruction and teaching. And they believe that Jesus is going to lead them through the explanation that they're used to hearing. They're expecting him to say, here's what we're eating and here's why we're eating it. And it's rooted in God's rescue of his people. But when they get to that portion of the meal here, everything changes. And they're hearing something that they've never heard before and that is utterly unique. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Rather than explaining what happened to Israel in Egypt, Jesus now centers the elements of this rescue memorial on himself. And he becomes the focal point of God's rescue. Now, the most natural way to take this symbolism here, take, this is my body, it is broken. The most natural way to take this is that his body will be broken by death. And I don't think the disciples fully understood what was happening here, but surely they pondered this. 
and what this meant for them. And since Jesus took the bread and he distributed it among them and they ate it, they're thinking about that reality and they're probably thinking, somehow I'm going to participate in this death, in his body being broken, and I'm going to receive a benefit from his death. But as he moves on to the cup, we get even more clarity. Look at verses 23 to 25. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And after he gives it to them, and they drink it, he gives an explanation. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So after, after the disciples drink the cup, Jesus gives them three major points of explanation. And these major points of explanation teach them about what his death will mean and what it will accomplish. First of all, he says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. The wine in front of you is his blood of the covenant. Now he's not coming up with these words out of thin air, as you may have imagined. He's pulling these words from Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8. Now, to give you a little bit of understanding of what's happening here, because we're going to kind of jump in the middle, this is after God has made a covenant with his people and given them the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. He's given them the laws that they are to obey, the specifics of what it looks like to live as his covenant people in chapters 21 to 23. And then you get to chapter 24, and this is where God is going to ratify or seal his covenant with his people. And so Moses kills an animal here. Look what he does. He took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. That's the phrase from Mark that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses seals the covenant that God has made between him and the people by sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the people. Now here, Jesus doesn't sprinkle the wine on the people, but they participate and they show they're participating in the covenant by drinking this cup. What covenant is this? In my Bible, it just says, this is my blood of the covenant. Some of your Bibles may say new covenant, and that's right, it is the new covenant. It's not the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. It's a covenant described and spoken of in Jeremiah, chapter 31. And what's so significant about this covenant? This is the covenant that brings forgiveness of sin. This is the covenant that brings a new heart by the Holy Spirit. This is a defining moment in redemptive history. They're entering a new era here, a new covenant. God is inaugurating this covenant through the shedding of the blood of a new Passover lamb for his people. And that brings us to the second major point of explanation here. 
Continue in verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This blood of the covenant that seals and inaugurates this new covenant, this relationship between God and his people where their sins are forgiven and they are given a new heart to obey his law and to walk with him. The blood of this covenant is poured out for many. Jesus here is alluding to another passage. He's sort of bringing together Exodus 24 and Isaiah 53. Not only will he inaugurate a new covenant with his death, but he will atone for the sins of his people with his blood. So let's look at the work of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. You can turn there if you want. If not, it'll be on the screen. I'll read you some parts of this passage. There's a lot you could say about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and we'll say some of that over the next couple of months in Mark 14 through 16. But one of the big things that you see about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is that he does not suffer for his own sins. He suffers as a substitute for the sins of another. It's all over this passage. Listen to the language of substitution here. Verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now verses 11 and 12. This is where Jesus pulls this language poured out for many. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. He, Jesus is saying here, he's using this language to tell the disciples and to tell us, I am the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, and I will atone for sin with my blood. I will give my life for the life of another. And so when Jesus uses this word blood here, poured out for many, it's shorthand for a sacrificial death. I mean, that's the heart of what his work will be on the cross. So if you think back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament animal sacrifices, this is why it's so vital that you read and understand the Old Testament. They were offered, they were spotless, free from blemish animals that were offered to God. And what happened is the sin of the sinner, the guilt of the sinner, was imputed or transferred to the sacrifice. And the sacrifice was offered as a substitute for the sinner, on behalf of the sinner, instead of 
the sinner. You see that language here. Poured out for many on behalf of, as a substitute for the sinner. And in the Old Testament, the result was the cancellation or the removal of the sin of the sinner because of the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice. And so Jesus is saying here that his blood will be poured out in that same way, except not in that same way. Hebrews 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, they make you ritually clean. On the outside, you're able to participate in the covenant when an animal is offered as a sacrifice. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The inside, the guilt, the sense of guilt before God is cleansed and wiped away because the true and final Passover lamb was offered as a sacrifice. There's one more point of explanation here. It's found in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus' death will secure our redemption, but ultimately one day it will bring about God's kingdom fully and finally on the earth, his reign over all. His death, his sacrifice is the means by which his kingdom will come in its fullness. He becomes the exalted king because he gives himself up as a sacrifice for sin. And here he looks beyond his death, and I think you can even see implied his resurrection here. He looks beyond that to the final consummation of his work. And he says he will be enthroned and reign over all and every knee will bow and see him as king of kings and lord of lords because of what he does here. And so when you see Christ's explanation of his coming death, We have to think here for a moment about what our response should be to this. So to do that, let's keep with this passage and let's think back to the Passover meal. And as that father in the first century is explaining to his son and his family is listening, and they're celebrating God's redemption and rescue of his people out of Egypt, what response would they be called to during that celebration and that ceremony? What were they supposed to do? Well, I will let the Mishnah tell you again. In every generation, a person must see himself as though he personally had gone out of Egypt. There's an a personal appropriation of what's happening. As it is stated, and this is the passage we just read, and you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Personally appropriating that work for myself and seeing that the benefits come to me. 
Therefore, we are obligated to thank, praise, laud, glorify, exalt, lavish, bless, extol, and adore he who made all these miracles for our ancestors and for us. He brought us out from slavery to freedom, from sorrow to joy, from mourning to celebration of a festival, from darkness to great light, and from servitude to redemption. Therefore, let us say before him, hallelujah. And how much greater should our joy be when we see that God's rescue has been reconstituted around the final Passover lamb and our conscience has been cleansed and we have given what we needed all along, which is redemption from our sin and eternal life. That's an appropriate response. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't, we just can't even press into these things without the work of your Holy Spirit in us. Lord Holy Spirit, please illumine our hearts. Give us understanding. Help us to respond appropriately to what we've heard today, the explanation of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You are worthy of our highest praise. You are worthy of lives that are committed to you and that respond in obedience to you because you are the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. You poured out your blood for many. And I pray that you would be honored and revered and worshiped as you so rightly deserve. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your blood poured out for us, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.